Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Capital Region and Bracebridge Hall, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Just five days into the new administration, and the memory of Donald Trump has already began to fade, like a bad dream. Elections have consequences, and the results this time was a wholesale repudiation of the Trump agenda. Now begins the actual purge, as President Biden has signed a flurry of executive orders aimed at dismantling the most divisive and destructive of the former president's agenda. Well, Lindsay, many of the things that uh, Joe Biden signed today are pure reversals of executive actions that Donald Trump took. So think about it as the pendulum swinging, the flip of a switch, things like putting the U.S. back in the Paris Climate Accord or redirecting all federal agencies to begin diversity training again. Pretty simple directives, but very powerful and impactful moves uh, that that are the exact opposite of what Donald Trump did. Biden's transition has in recent days laid out the schematics of an intricate plan to systematically dismantle as much of Trump's legacy as possible. Reversing the Muslim ban, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, and instituting a nationwide mask mandate on federal property. That's just on the first day when the president intends to sign 17 executive orders, many of them aimed at cleaning up the previous administration's mess. On Thursday, Time magazine released its first issue of the Biden era with an illustration from artist Tim O'Brien of a trashed Oval Office and the words, day one, written on the cover. Predictably, Fox News lost its mind. I mean, that's not real. That picture isn't real. Don't we care? I thought we were a nation who cared about the facts. The message, though, is unmistakable. Donald Trump has left the country far worse than when he inherited it from Barack Obama. He fucking trashed the place. And everywhere you look, there's a serious cleanup required. No more so than the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which was widely derided as an unmitigated disaster. But to the new administration's horror, now that they're finally digging in, it's far, far worse than they had imagined. On Inauguration Day alone, there were 4,400 deaths nationwide from COVID-19. The pandemic is bringing another painful milestone this morning. Nearly 400,000 people have now died in this tragedy, enough to fill the stands of New York's Madison Square Garden nearly 20 times over. More than 166,000 of those Americans have lost their lives since the November election. The new administration is already behind, in part because the Trump administration was unprecedentedly hostile during the transition. It's not just the spread of the virus that the Biden team needs to tackle. 
Officials will also have to confront the disinformation and misinformation about the virus that has permeated all four corners of the country, where people still believe the virus is a hoax and that public health guidelines are too great of an imposition on their personal freedom to follow. Did the lack of candor, did the lack of facts in some cases over the last year cost lives? You know, it very likely did. You know, I don't want that, John, to be a soundbite, but I think if you just look at that, you could see that when you're starting to go down paths that are not based on any science at all, and we've been there before, I don't want to rehash it, that is not helpful at all. And particularly when you're in the situation of almost being in a crisis with the number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths that we have, when you start talking about things that make no sense medically and no sense scientifically, That clearly is not helpful. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced Friday that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will deliver the single article of impeachment against Donald Trump to the Senate floor on Monday, setting off the start of the former president's impeachment trial earlier than Republicans had hoped. Mitch McConnell, who is already playing political football with this impeachment, asked for a delay in order for Trump to properly prepare his defense. McConnell is trying to thread the needle between his behind-the-scenes support for purging Trump from the GOP and is not wanting to leave any fingerprints behind that would reveal his MAGA treachery. Now, I've heard some of my Republican colleagues argue that this trial would be unconstitutional because Donald Trump is no longer in office. An argument that has been roundly repudiated, debunked by hundreds of constitutional scholars, left, right, and center, and defies basic common sense. It makes no sense whatsoever that a president or any official could commit a heinous crime against our country and then be permitted to resign so as to avoid accountability and a vote to disbar them from future office. Makes no sense. Regardless, the purveyors of this unusual argument are trying to delay the inevitable. The fact is the House will deliver the article of impeachment to the Senate. The Senate will conduct a trial of the impeachment of Donald Trump. It will be a full trial. It will be a fair trial. In far more frightening news, Reuters is reporting that Iran's supreme leader has threatened Donald Trump with assassination by posting a high-quality image of a drone targeting the former president while he takes a fucking golf swing. The image on Twitter shows a particularly obese-looking Trump teeing off with a drone shadow above him. It's captioned with Ayatollah Ali Khamenei's address from December, in which he said, Revenge is certain over the Trump-ordered killing of top Iranian military commander General Qassem Soleimani last year. In the far fringes of the internet conspiracy machine, QAnon is experiencing a reckoning of its own as none of its prophecies came to pass on Inauguration Day as promised. Followers of the pro-Trump conspiracy theory have spent weeks anticipating that last Wednesday would be the Great Awakening, a day long foretold in QAnon prophecy when top Democrats would be arrested for running a global sex trafficking ring and President Trump would seize a second term in office. The election was stolen. Biden would never become president. Trump would round up the so-called deep state in a reckoning. 
It was all part of conspiracy theories like QAnon that many Trump supporters bought into. But as President Biden took office and Mr. Trump landed in Florida with no mass arrests in sight, some adherents had found themselves questioning what it was that they had gotten themselves into in the first place. <laughs> President Trump, if you see this, please save us. <laughs> I don't even see our American flag anymore. Biden's talking with some kind of crazy flag. Please, President Trump. Please, please, I hope you have a plan. Even Jake Angeli, the so-called QAnon shaman who became one of the most outer faces of the Capitol riot with his fur pelt and Viking horns, is expressing regret. For more than three years, tens of thousands of QAnon believers have pinned their hopes for the future on a second Trump term. They've become convinced that the government is run by a cabal of satanic pedophile cannibal and that Trump is the only way to restore justice. Many of them, egged on by promises that Trump's plan included the eradication of diseases and personal debt, pin their dreams on QAnon as well, alienating friends and family with their ideas. There are a lot of QAnon followers who feel very uh, angry and disillusioned as they realize they have been misled. But there are also many people who are uh, still doubling down, still trusting the plan, still thinking that something uh, very dramatic is going to happen. I must admit that I am concerned about the unusually high expectations we are placing upon the shoulders of Joe Biden. In those terrible months between election and inauguration day, while we watched Trump attempt to destroy democracy, our only salvation was that Joe Biden would soon be president. But along the way, many of us have poured the entirety of our hopes and dreams and frustrations about Donald Trump into a Biden presidency. On inauguration day, he was being spoken of by the media in almost messianic terms the wise man returning to Washington to deliver us all from evil. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound In recent days, he's been compared to FDR and LBJ amongst others, which is ironic considering that one year prior, he was considered persona non grata by the progressive wing of his party. He was the great compromiser and champion of bipartisanship, which were anathema to grassroots Democrats who were in the mood to fight. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Biden was labeled as a has-been, out of touch, and past his prime. That is until he began to win. South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn helped deliver his Super Tuesday, and Biden found his footing on the campaign trail and on the debate stage. The one person who was never in doubt about Biden's ability to win the 2020 election was Donald Trump. He knew that Biden could connect with white working class voters in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in a way that Hillary Clinton couldn't in 2016. Biden spooked Trump so badly, he went searching for dirt on him in Ukraine, which ultimately led to his first impeachment. This is CNN Breaking News. 
and we do begin with that breaking news, CNN has learned that President Trump had a communication with a foreign leader that was so troubling to one U.S. intelligence official that they filed a whistleblower complaint. The Washington Post reports this involved a promise. It is not known who the whistleblower is or who the foreign leader is. In the end, though, most people voted for Joe Biden because he wasn't Donald Trump. In the Midwest suburbs where Biden scratched out his victory, people were tired, just simply fucking tired of the chaos. Biden would restore calm and sanity. He was the presidential equivalent of khaki pants, normal, safe, and unthreatening. But the post-election storm created by Donald Trump in his attempt to overturn the election and ultimately incite a mob to storm the Capitol once again changed the needs of the country. Suddenly, the restoration of normalcy was not enough. The nation needed to be healed. A great trauma has been inflicted on our national psyche, and suddenly there was no one better to lead us to the other side than Joe Biden. Great presidents receive an assignment from history. They heed a call, and then they fill a need. The bloody cups are bloody king, bloody keep it bloody clean, bloody cheats are bloody swine, bloody draws are bloody lines, the bloody fun and bloody games, the bloody kids are bloody blames, nowhere to be bloody found, anywhere in chicken town. And now for the main event. My next guests symbolize a new generation in progressive politics and media. The Micellus brothers, Ben and Brett, and their younger brother, Jordan, are the brains and muscle behind the widely successful Midas Touch. Throughout the election cycle, their videos have garnered more viral attention and have done more to pillory Donald Trump, his family, and his proxies than anything created with the exception of the Lincoln Project. The Micellus brothers, though, are capital D Democrats who aren't afraid to fight and get salty. They bring with them the tools and language of digital culture and speak with fluency about memes, TikToks, and Twitter. The result has been an astonishing influence on the fortunes of those candidates they favor and the fear and enmity from those they target with their withering videos. They recently launched their own podcast, which has quickly garnered a massive audience who came to the brothers to get a take on politics that isn't filtered and softened for what many believe to be the appetites of a progressive audience. They can be mean and snarky, but also insightful and empathetic. Let's listen now to that conversation. All right, so we're here today with the Micellus brothers, the founders, the creators, the genius behind Midas Touch. So let me jump right in and say that this question, I'm going to do it to Brother Ben. All right. On a tweet, Ben, from January 15th, you wrote, I know. I refuse to call the GOP <laughs> Republicans or conservative. They are terrorists, the radical right, fascists, or the Republican fascist party of Donald Trump. They will own their betrayal and sedition. Period. End of story. How do you believe the GOP repairs itself moving forward? when the grassroots of their party and those who control the state party apparatus have all drifted far to the extreme right, presenting themselves as saviors of Trump? I don't think they can, and I don't think they will. I think ultimately there's going to be a significant fracture that literally tears it apart. Look, Michael, you know more than anyone, everything that Donald Trump touches, he bankrupts one entity after another. And he's already initiated the bankrupting of the GOP, but I don't think that they can recover at all. 
And that's why whenever people use the words conservative, uh, on, on our podcast today, the Midas Touch podcast, Brett used the word conservative. Ben went after me. Yeah, Brett used the word conservative because, you know, these conservatives, I said, don't call them conservatives. They are terrorists. They are fascists. They don't, they haven't earned the label of, there's nothing conservative about leading an insurrection against the United States government. You see this energy, Michael? This as a younger brother of Ben is what I had to go through. It just I got to step it up about the like, Michael Cohen podcast. Like, I got to step it up. But like these words, like that tweet, <laughs> that very strongly worded tweet, picture being a younger brother and Ben wants to pick at you and he just, finds every little moment, every little tick of you, and just pushes that gas pedal. Well, who's who's tougher? Me. Oh, excuse me? Oh, well, then you, then you better shut the fuck up and let him keep saying what he wants. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, he's, you know, one would think that if you weren't as tough as he was, you would have hit the gym a little bit. You know what? It's that older brother psychology. And, uh, and <laughs> you know, the pandemic really hurt my workout schedule, if I'm being honest, Michael. Yeah, because staying home really prevents you from lifting some weights. I hear you. But I did want to ask you, since we were touching on, <laughs> since we were touching on that and everything Donald Trump turns to shit, I did want to ask you, you know, he does have a ton of money in a pack. You think he keeps that money for himself? What do you think that he does with it? Because if he does that, I believe that he will still have a lot more influence in the GOP or the state party races because he can use that money, which, again, is not his. Though, remember, once it touches a Donald Trump account in his mind, he believes it is, however, in this pack. If you read the language in the super PAC that he created, the bulk of that money, he has complete discretion over. So you think that's going to make any changes to the question that I asked Ben? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a, I think it's a Trump slush fund. I think he was duping his own people the whole time. It's why he kept the entire election fraud scheme going. And by the way, I, I actually do kind of think in his sick mind, he believed the election was rigged, even though he rigged it and lost. I feel like he was so shocked that he didn't actually win the election that he convinced himself that the election was rigged and that he wasn't a loser, even though he is a loser. But he made the language clear in the pack. Journalists pointed it out. People like us pointed it out that this money was essentially going into a Trump slush fund. And his supporters who didn't care, I mean, I, we, we can't help them. But but the fact is they were basically putting money in his pocket. I think Trump is going to need to figure out where he's going to be getting his next paycheck from after this. I think he's really done irreparable damage to the brand. I think there are still a faction of people who obviously will follow him with whatever he does, be it you know creating a Trump media company or if he wants to sell steaks again or whatever he's pl planning on doing. But I think he now has that money at his disposal. I think he'll use it how he sees fit. And whether whether that's putting it into some sort of political run or literally using it to buy himself things or Ivanka things or whatever it is. I mean, I think he's going to take it as his money. And look, Michael, money, money is the great equalizer, as you know, but it kind of works both ways in the sense that now that many corporations are saying that if you aided and abetted the insurrection and if you're tied to Donald Trump in that, we're not going to be donating not just to you as a candidate, but to your PACs. And so that's a consideration that is for, for terrorist Republicans. All they know is money, you know, and when corporations start to pull away from them, that's what makes them act. 
not necessarily insurrections. And I don't think, and I think that's why you see McConnell now trying desperately to distance himself from this. And some people are like, oh my gosh, McConnell, this principled man, like is this Mitch McConnell, maybe I had him wrong. No, I think he's worried about his donors. He's worried because he sees the money leaving. It's one of the most important things to him. He sees that this is his key to holding on power. Unlike Trump, McConnell's actually pretty freaking smart, in my opinion. I think he's a very savvy guy. And I mean, that's why he's doing it, because these companies are fleeing and it's not cancel culture. I mean, these companies don't want to be associated with insurrection because the public doesn't support a terrorist insurrection on the United States. It just I'd like to to see how long that's going to last, though, because what what generally happens is, yeah, it's all about how much pressure is going to come onto these big flows. They're already talking right now. There's going to be a big meeting to decide whether or not Donald Trump is able to get back parts of his different social media platforms as far as i'm concerned when you're off you're off now if that means that he has to start again well start again he doesn't want that he wants it to be reinstated but you did bring up a really good point about the irreparable damage that he has done to this brand because i say that he's put a shit stain on this brand i remember when going back in like 2013 through a company, Trump was successful in getting an appraisal, a brand value appraisal from a legitimate company, by the way, and a legitimate guy. And the guy put a valuation. It's probably the single most valuable asset at the time of the Trump organization, and that was the brand name. And they had it ranging between 3 to $4 billion. That's how we were able to elevate the value of his net worth, which was interesting because, of course, the brand value is not encumbered. Right. Well, right now, it's basically a garbage dump, the the Trump brand, and anything that you slap that, that fucking name on really becomes toxic, right? I mean, seriously. Well, I guess you, you could use it to get out of paying taxes for the next 10 years. <laughs> well, don't, don't kid yourself because they're on top I'm of that I'm not kidding. Well. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I mean, but imagine whatever you slap that Trump name onto, you may as well throw it in the garbage because it's toxic right off the rip. More than half this country will not buy it because of their disdain for Donald Trump. But worse than that, of the 70 million people that voted for him, how many of them do you think actually voted for Trump because they believe in Donald Trump, that they're supporters, or very much like the way Trump won against Hillary Clinton, where people just held their nose and said, I just don't want to vote for Joe Biden. So I'm going to pull the lever for Donald Trump. At least my 401k, at least the economy is going to go. I don't know what what Biden's going to do. I just don't want another Barack Obama in the office. I think you probably have somewhere around 25 to 33 percent of the country that's fully engrossed in that QAnon, proud boy serious kind of white supremacy cult that's very hard to peel off. And then I think you have the rest of the vote are people who believe that Republicans stand for lower taxes and and that they just don't want to vote for Democrats based a lot on what they're hearing about, um, you know, in the news from Fox News and, and, and things like that. And then I guess within that other group, not that 25 to 33%. I think you also have a group of just kind of low educated voters who just vote Republican just because they think that Democrats stand purely for socialism, 
without realizing that they themselves are availing themselves to a lot of the socialistic programs that the government has are helping actually to support their lifestyles. So, also, I, I think, think that's, that's deeply a- ingrained in, in the way a lot of people grow up, especially in these rural areas. Being a Republican is a core part of your identity, much akin to religion is to many people. They grew up as Republicans. Their fathers were Republicans. Their grandparents were Republicans. And Democrats to them have always been the other or the enemy. So the idea of voting for a Joe Biden or any sort of Democrat, I mean, it's how kind of these QAnon conspiracies come from it, because it's like, how do I I vote for the devil? So even if they don't like Trump, they're voting for the lesser of two evils in their mind, because at least they know he's a Republican. They could go on. And the fact is, I mean, Trump has totally upended the entire definition of what a Republican is. Like Ben, you know, gets mad about conservative. I don't think Republicans have been conservative as long as I've been growing up. I mean, deficits are always higher. Spending's always higher under Republicans. And Trump has just taken the claim that he's a true Republican and has branded all the people who used to be a traditional Republican as rhinos in this crazy reverse move. Then now the people who, I mean, Trump is the ultimate rhino out there, if you think about it. I mean, Trump is not a real Republican by any stretch of the imagination here. He's also not a Democrat or an independent. He's whatever suited him for the time being. Yep. So, Ben, also from your Twitter, you wrote, looking for a men in black neuralizer to erase my memory of Trump for the past four years. Have any leads? Discuss with me the real and lasting trauma that you believe Trump will have on people. Because I seriously believe that in six months, you'll be hearing about post-traumatic Trump disorder. PTTD. I think there is a real psychological trauma the entire country went through for the past four years. You know, Trump is an abuser in his personal life, in his professional life, Michael, which you know more than, you know, more than anyone. And you saw the abuse too well. on women, on people that he works with. But he used the power of the presidency, the most powerful position in the world more powerful than nuclear bombs. I mean, with controlling nuclear bombs, but he used that to abuse America and abuse, you know, 300 million plus people who live here. And that gaslighting, the viciousness, the, the, the lies every single day, the hate, the attacking private citizens, um, you know, just imagine if you showed up to work every day and, you know, your partner or your boss or a coworker just basically went to you every day like, fuck you, get the fuck out of here. You'd be a mother. He did that basically to the, you know, two people every day as Americans. And so yesterday during inauguration, I felt physically different. And when I talked to Americans, that's the feedback that I'm hearing. Like, a weight being lifted off your shoulder. I was telling Brett that I was able to get up earlier today. I was able to make healthier choices in just like what I eat and what I do. Um, and to me, a lot of that just feels like the clutches of this abusive person are just removed. And so I'm with you. I think that people will be studying the trauma that he instilled in this country. And it's going to, take a long time to heal.
And by the way, Michael, I want to say, I think that trauma is both for people who are against Trump like us, but I think there's also going to be a deep trauma in the people who trusted him and thought that he was their guy. Like these QAnon supporters who yesterday, I'm not sure if you saw a lot of the videos during the inauguration, but there were a lot of people having mental breakdowns because their view of reality was all of a sudden shattered in an instant because they thought that the second Joe Biden got on that stage, Trump was going to put on the national emergency alert system, shut down the media, everybody on that stage, Obama, Clinton, Biden, were going to be arrested executed and Trump was going to take his throne as the rightful heir to America. I mean, this is the sick shit that they were actually hoping was going to happen yesterday. And they were so devastated that it didn't happen, that these people had a break from reality. And I think I I agree. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for this to really marinate and set in to everybody. But I do think in a few months, there will be a a post-traumatic Trump disorder, which is what I think you called it, um, just across the entire population, affecting us in different ways. You know, it's funny because I saw the article, I believe it was written by CNN, regarding that QAnon shaman, the uh, guy in the Chewbacca outfit in a bikini running around. They're walking away from Trump, as are the Proud Boys, which I thought was incredibly interesting that not within 24 hours of the guy's departure, which I thought was a pathetic display by him, and I never would have allowed it if I was there, to behave with such a dishonorable way. He he basically put, as I said before, a shit stain on his trademark. That's a clown but, show. But well, yeah, one of, my, one of the things I found to be amazing was the fact that how quickly that they're now turning on him. Because you're right, they didn't expect that nothing was going to happen. They figured that Donald Trump, their Messiah, was going to float down from the heavenly sky. He was going to lay hands on President Clinton, on George Bush, on Barack Obama, and they would disintegrate. They would just disintegrate into, into powder, right? Because that's the power of Donald Trump. And when nothing happened, and I mean absolutely nothing other than the continuous loop of Donald and Melania walking to that Marine One, basically looking like like shit, right? Like two gigantic babies getting in, flying off. Then that pathetic display over at the Air Force Base that was set up supposed to be for over a 1,000 people, and about 250 people showed up most of which were either employees from like Trump, uh, you know, the hotel in D.C. or Virginia. Most of them are are from there. I got a question for you, Michael, because I, I heard I heard Scaramucci got an invite. So I, I heard I believe the invite list was going deep. So did you get an invite for this event? Hey, Brett, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Brett, I was thinking, I was going to ask the question too, but you beat me to it. Hey, Ben, hey, Ben, go fuck yourself too. Hey, I couldn't so, have imagined so you know, two fun- years ago that Michael Cohen would tell me to go fuck myself on his podcast. But here we are, 2021. 
<laughs> All right. It's an amazing year. Mike, were you looking through the pardon list to see if your name was going to be on it? <laughs> I just wanted to see how many guys I knew that were on that pardon list. And you sadly, there were, quite, there were quite a yeah. few. But I, no, I didn't. Think so. There's a better chance you're going to get a pardon than I. But, you know, you brought up a good point, by the way, when you said that, you know, people in this country feel abused by Donald Trump. It's not this country that feels abused by Donald Trump. It's actually the whole world. And I find it so interesting that I get so many texts and so many emails and so many requests for um, appearances, for responses from Australia, from England, from Ireland, from Scotland, you know, from New Zealand. I mean, I get them from all or from Africa. I get them from all over the world. Germany now wants me to do an appearance on television there. And I have to be honest with you. There's an old expression that's that goes like um, a strong America means a strong world and a weak America means a weak world. And we have been weak over the course of the last four years. And Donald Trump has made the world into a weaker place. So I believe that countries, and I'm not talking about Russia, not talking about, you know, North Korea or Turkey. I'm talking about like Germany. I'm talking about like Canada. I'm talking about, you know, democratic countries. They feel very weak and they feel very scared because that's what Donald Trump did. Normally, you embrace your allies and you have conflict with your adversaries. Over the course of the past four years, what did Donald Trump do? Right? He cozied up to all of our adversaries and he kicked into the groin all of our allies. And it never made any sense to to me. And I know it doesn't make sense to people around the world. What's your thought? I think it's been a total betrayal of what America is, what America means, you know, America is a beacon of freedom. And when you become a beacon of freedom, that means you don't just do things for your self-interest. You know, sometimes being a beacon of, of freedom means that you do things like help out allies in World War II. Could you imagine if, you know, Trump was the president during World War II? I mean, he would be like, I know why would I put American troops to help, you know, invade on D-Day? You know, that that's for the you know, and, and you'd have fascism overcome the world. American steps up and spreads the value of democracy because we're in a position to. And because if we don't, countries like Russia and China assert themselves internationally and make our futures bleaker, weaker and threaten not just us, but the obligations that we have to our grandchildren and future generations to ensure that they live in a democracy. And Donald Trump obliterated that because he doesn't believe in oaths. He doesn't believe in democracy. He doesn't believe in the United States Constitution. He believes in Donald Trump and, and that's it. And just even a proactive approach with COVID, you know, having the right scientists in place in China, Donald Trump removed all of the scientists and then wondered why you know, and then blame China. Look, China is always going to fuck up because they're China. They don't have the same values and, you know, and systems that we have sometimes. So we had scientists in different countries to proactively confront global pandemics and to be on top of those things. And Trump totally took us out of that. And I honestly believe had we not had 
Trump in office and we had Obama or we had Biden, we would have been so proactive with COVID the same way we were with all those other potential pandemics that were taking place. We would be nowhere near 400,000 deaths. And I don't by think- the way, I bet you if we had like, say, 20,000 deaths from COVID in like a Hillary Clinton administration or a Joe Biden administration, the Republicans would be freaking out. They would have impeached whoever was president on the Democratic side a billion times. There would have been so much outrage about it. I cannot even imagine it. You know, it's funny, Ben, because you bring up D-Day. And if Donald Trump was president during World War II, the only thing that he would be concerned about would be whether or not D-Day stands for Donald Day. And that's the day that we kick ass. All right. We're not going to do anything, but we're going to tell everyone that we won because that's exactly what he would do. Right. It would be he would see D. And the first thing running through his ignorant mind is, does that D stand for me? Now, what bothered me is I saw this yesterday and I was really furious because a wonderful, wonderful woman that worked at my children's um, prep school and I got to know her for over a decade and a half. She's just an amazing, amazing woman named Lord Des. She passed away yesterday of COVID and all the children posted photos of her, you know, at school where she would to embrace them on a daily basis, take care of them. She worked the front. And um, I got to be honest with you. um, When I saw that he had left for Biden, no plan. And it's not that he didn't leave a plan for Biden to continue or to review. There was no fucking plan, right? I mean, so that means it's no different than the way he used to behave at the Trump org. Fucking wing it. I'm Donald Trump. I could do anything. I could bullshit my way out of a coronavirus, out of a pandemic. I can turn around and tell the country that the China virus is going to be over in a day. It's one person, right? Go to work. It's a flu. No, it's not, you fucking baby idiot, right? He's not even a baby. He's a big idiot. And for God's sakes, when you start seeing numbers like 4 million deaths, when you start seeing 4,400 deaths a day or 130 plus thousand new hospitalization days, somebody's got to turn around and walk into his office and say, hey there, Mr. President, what the fuck are you doing? Enough. Enough. How many more Americans have to die before you turn around and figure out a plan? Oh, don't worry. We have it under control. Nobody did better. And he's angry at you at me, at all the Democrats, that he wasn't nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. He should have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize for for the pandemic because he's responsible for the, for the cure. He's responsible for the vaccine. That's how myopic this man thinks. It's all about him and not about anybody else. The sad thing is, had he done literally nothing, it would have been better than what he did, which was actually be detrimental to the process in COVID. I mean, we're seeing right now Dr. Fauci come out with the Biden administration. The guy looks 15 years younger. He looks like a weight is lifted off his shoulder. He's able to speak freely. He says he feels liberated. He says he's going to be honest with the people. If Trump just literally sat back quit the bullshit and let people like Fauci and let the experts deal with the problem without Trump getting in the way, we could have actually solved this. And the irony about it all to me is if he did that, I honestly do believe that there is a much greater chance that he would be have would have been inaugurated for his second term as president yesterday. Had he even just not even done 
anything that he did on COVID, but let the scientists handle it. Forget even the COVID, Brett. Like he got a the, he got the second chance when he contracted it to then be responsible. And the media would have like, jumped all over it. The media would have been like, oh, look at this change of tone. Donald learned his lesson. This is a new Trump. He's going to take things seriously. And then he just gave the middle finger to the fucking country again, lied and said that he was must be immune now. So everybody come kiss me, come hug me. Like these are real sick things that he said to people rather than saying, I've been there. This is serious. I'm only okay right now because I had a cocktail of drugs that was only available to me and that would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I know how serious this is. And we need to step up as a country and unite and wear masks and take precautions. Had he done that, he could have also had a, a second chance. I agree with you in the last couple of months, kind of like how Chris Christie kind of had this come to Jesus moment after he was on his deathbed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really unbelievable. But Brett, you know, since we were talking about the inauguration the other day, um, how would you rate Joe Biden's inaugural address? Because Chris Wallace called it the best he's ever heard in modern politics. Now, I, I, I can't stand Chris Wallace. I personally, and I hate, to, I, I hate the fact that I'm cursing so much today. You guys are bringing out for me, you Long Island guy. It's all Ben. It's all Ben. I fucking hate Chris Wallace. I think he's a jerk off, right? But he's 100% right about this. I think that Joe Biden's inaugural address, and I think that Vice President Kamala Harris's response that she gave was equally brilliant. What was your opinion on it? No, I, I agree 100 percent because I think to just the the seriousness and the gravity of the moment demanded a pitch perfect message to America. And I think when Joe Biden got there and spoke to America, he not only met that moment, but he exceeded that moment when we needed it best. And for overall, just the entire transition process and the inauguration process, first off, Trump couldn't have been more of a dick about it as usual. I mean, down to the last day, not giving him the plane to to fly into D.C. and and Biden having to take his own plane. I mean, how petty do you get? But to have planned and executed such a pitch perfect inauguration and speech and all just the pageantry around it, to me, was incredible given the level of obstruction they had going against them. And I hope that that's a microcosm of the administration, them not having a plan, them not having anything, any sort of past precedent from the previous administration to go on about how to handle our crisis or to know where vaccine distribution is. I mean, I, I think that's why, you know, looking back, I think Joe Biden was, in fact, the only candidate of all those candidates who is fit to meet this moment because he's been in the White House before. He knows the challenges that we face. And he was literally, and not just saying it, he was literally ready on day one. I think he proved that yesterday. And what about you there, Ben? You have any comments? Yeah, I think that it's all, I mean, you have to view it in context. I mean, the context is the 2016 inauguration was somebody who talked about American carnage and then projected his vision of American carnage onto the country. And then so to have an organized, coherent uh, inauguration that preached unity instead of division, that preached peace instead of hate, that projected strength across the world. I mean, that's what made it, that's what made it a 10. I mean, would it have been a 10 of 10? If it was after Obama, or would it be a 10 of 10 if it was after 
you know, I don't know, but clearly for the moment, and that's how we have to look at things. We can't look at FDR without viewing Hoover. We can't, you know, we, we can't view, we can't view, you know, Nixon a certain way and then view LBJ a certain way. You have to view how people exist in, in historical moments around each other. Um, so in this particular moment, Biden rose to the occasion and, and delivered a knockout speech and just all of the elements around it, um, from the Nobel, from the poet laureate who, who read that incredible speech about, you know, unity. Miss Gorman, she was beyond phenomenal. I mean, she took my heart away, but really Joe went ahead and everything was in there. As you said, Ben, empathy, unity, family, thanks to staff. That's something that Trump lacks. But I want to ask both of you guys, because Midas Touch is rolling out a new ad blitz and you're targeting Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley and others, all who supported the overturning of the 2020 election. Who do you guys hold most accountable for January 6th, Cruz or Hawley, or are they both equally rotten to the core? I think they're both equally complicit in it. I mean, I think obviously Donald Trump is the main insider of this, but I think you have guys like Hawley and Cruz who know better. These are smart guys. They're well-educated guys. They know exactly what, what it is they're doing. And they're trying to take advantage of this moment for their presidential aspirations. And I think it is absolutely disgusting. And I think it's a very cynical form of politics that they're engaging in, a very dishonest form of politics that they're engaging in. And that's why they are our, our first two targets. And they're not going to be our only targets. We're going to go after a lot more people than them, including the 140-plus Congress people who helped incite the uh, insurrection, including the Lauren Boberts, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the QAnon kooks in Congress. We're going to go after all of them, but we thought it was important that Hawley and Cruz were priority number one. So we're going on a full ad blitz right now, billboards, TV, um, in their home markets, in DC. We're going to be hitting them everywhere they are. And we need to start this process now because for far too long, as Democrats, Democrats have waited till the election starts to start going after opponents and to start labeling them, to start making sure people know who these people are. While Republicans have been incredibly effective using their media ecosystem of the Fox News of the world, of the Breitbart's of AM talk radio to start labeling people and policies accordingly right from the get-go. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, as Midas Touch, combat that, get to them early and make sure people know who these people are and do everything we can, by the way, to expel these people from the Senate, which I think they should be under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Yeah, we can't take democracy for granted. I mean, Michael, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that you would do what you did, you know, coming out in the way you did to expose Trump and and, and the Trump organization and all the things you said from the inside. I mean, you know, we kind of we kind of take it for granted. I mean, you put yourself out there and you've sacrificed so much, you know, for yourself, for your family. Um, and so just on behalf of all Americans, you know, I, I, I just I know you know it, but I want you to hear it from us that like, thank you for everything that you did, because you could have just went the other road. You could have been like one of those 73 people who were commuted, who helped cover it up deeper. And you probably, truthfully, you probably would have got a pardon if, if you, you know, kept on the conduct and not exposing it. But history will view you 
very kindly. But it's not a foregone conclusion, Michael, that people like you face the moment of history with the appropriate courage. And what we found is three brothers without any political background, but kind of revolutionizing the way democratic politics are presented to the public and how Democrats need to run elections and how rhetorically we need to be aggressive. We can't take that for granted. So all of the campaigns that we're running for 2022 and 2024, that begins now. It makes me so inspired when I see your podcast, Michael, being one of the top podcasts, when I see our podcast, the Midas Touch podcast, being one of the top, you know, the 11th top podcast of all news the other day. But we're surrounded by, you know, a lot of these fascist, you know, right wingers, you know, who have existed, the the, the Bannons and the Kirk Durkies and the Vaginos and, and all of these people. And we got to keep pushing our message and stay stronger than ever. You know, so I thank you for your kind words. I have to be honest with you. Right after the announcement of the first group of pardons, my inbox really started to flood on all various forms of social media. I mean, people are cruel, to say the least, especially when you're a texting tough guy. You know, I would receive, basically the message was that you're a fucking idiot had you shut up, you rat, then, you know, you would have been first on the list of Trump pardons. Now look at you. Well, I tell you, as I responded back to one of them, and it kind of went viral. When I walk the streets in New York, when I walk this country, when I'm ultimately off of home confinement, I will walk with my head up high, right? It's painful what happened to me, and I suffer every day. I suffer from the second I wake up to the second that I go to sleep. And then while I'm dreaming, I suffer. So it's it's a horrible situation. And prison reform is something that's so desperately needed. And, you know, my hope also is that these po- type of podcasts and companies like yours will help to change prison reform because somebody like Reality Winner should not be in prison. Um, and watching some of these other pardons really angered me. But I, I, going back to what I was saying, the level of the animus because of my testifying before specifically the House Oversight Committee, it was so significant that, um, you know, yeah, I, I started to reflect back and say, I questioned myself at first. Did I do the right thing in light of the way that I go to bed and wake up and feel every single day? And yeah, I know I did the right thing. Because as I said to George Stephanopoulos on ABC, my first loyalty is to my wife, to my daughter, to my son, and to my country. And I had given up my loyalty. I gave up my moral compass while working for Trump. That's about what the book Disloyal is about. And it was a massive mistake because I ultimately saw, and I called it over 21 months ago when I testified before Elijah Cummings, that my biggest fear is that if Donald Trump loses, and I knew he was, if Donald Trump loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. And then while I was just horsing around on my phone today, and I found a bunch of old thoughts that at three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning that I write down in the notes. And it was amazing how I actually predicted to myself and it's dated like August of, you know, uh, 2019 that when Trump loses, 
that he will blow a dog whistle to a group of sycophantic supporters that are distorted in their thinking. And they will do things against this country that are dangerous and atrocious. And I wanted to put it out there, but then people would have turned around and said, ah, you just wrote it and backdated it, as if you could even do that. <laughs> I mean, you people know? should know by now that you know Trump uh, definitely better than Melania knows Trump, but probably better than all of his kids know Trump at this point. <laughs> That's true. So, by the way, you two, what was your political awakening? Because obviously I just spilled mine. What was your political awakening? And how did it lead you guys to forming Midas Touch? Because I'm very impressed by the work that you guys do. And obviously, it's one of the reasons why we reached out, you know, to have you here today. Uh, you know, yeah, well, I mean, generally, I was just always interested in, in politics as a spectator. Um, I mean, our, our family would, would talk politics growing up. Um, but I never took it seriously as like a career option. I honestly always thought that Ben would get into politics. Ben had went to GW undergrad. He went to Georgetown Law School. I always thought that was a path that Ben was going to pursue. And then he ended up going in a different direction with his law career. Um, but I was always a, a kind of outside spectator, always wanted to get involved, but was almost too afraid or didn't quite know how I could make a difference in the process. And really, it just became unnecessary necessity for me when I was sitting home, working from home at the time for a, uh, a, a travel basketball league, uh, staring down COVID and was kind of realizing that uh, COVID was going to fuck up ev everything at this point. Um, I actually had a, a trip planned with my wife for Italy over the summer. Um, Italy was one of the first places to be ravaged by COVID. Um, we, you know, kind of were following it early on. And I think I found a tweet of mine from February at some time, that was a response to Trump talking about his approval rating or some bullshit. And I said, like, why are you talking about your approval rating? There is a virus right now that's spreading through Europe, spreading through China. Do something about it. Help do something. If I knew that in February as just an outsider, it was baffling to me that Trump at the top, who had access to the highest levels of intelligence in the world, was not doing anything about it. And so I think it was really at that moment, it was us and me, you know, sitting home, watching those just horrible press conferences where he would come out and try to pitch hydroxychloroquine and tell people to have bleach and and to inject UV light. And it was just one after the next, after the next after the next. And I, I would be texting Ben over here and our other brother, Jordy. And I was just real. I felt like an existential crisis for humanity at that point. And so that really triggered me into action. And we all spoke and we were like, we, how, how do we do something about this? Like before it's like the end of the world. Like to me, this was like just the worst, most horrible thing that was this impending doom, just a slow motion train wreck happening before our eyes. And so that was the birth of, of me really becoming what we've now called ourselves or these like act, accidental activists. We kind of fell into this by necessity of the moment and once we decided to jump into it, we just haven't stopped since. I mean, I've been working really, and I would say all of us have been really every hour of the day, every day since we started Midas Touch, whether it's doing videos, doing our groundwork across the country, working on the billboards that we do, uh, you know, just a combination of, of all of our different efforts. And, you know, I've just learned a ton by, by doing that really. 
this point. I think- so, Ben, <laughs> let me ask you this before you jump in, right? You guys released a song uh, called Goodbye, Donnie with Bette Midler, who I'm mm-hmm. a huge, huge fan of. Fantastic. Since going back way before you guys were born. Uh, it was a, tel- a movie called Beaches uh, with Bette Midler, the day before the inauguration. How did that song come together? Were those original lyrics from Bette? Because walk me through how that came together. Walk me through, if you would, Ben, because I've heard enough from Brett already, right? Mm-hmm. The athletic supporter over here on the side. Um, <laughs> ben, tell me, how does something like that come together? You know, how do you put these things uh, together? How, just what's the process over there at Midas? So, look, we started in March with zero followers. We now have about 1.5 million followers across all of our social channels. We started with zero views of our videos that we created. We now have over 600 million views of our videos on Twitter alone. That doesn't include TikTok, YouTube, and the other social platforms. And we spent millions of dollars in swing states to make a difference. And that caught the eye of a lot of, you know, resistance celebrities or, or very high profile people who put themselves um, on the line these years, you know, and were major supporters, um, you know, of the resistance. And so that's everyone from Barbara Streisand to Bette Midler to Stevie Wonder um, to Nine Inch Nails. Um, we did an incredible video in Georgia with um, Patty. I'm drawing a blank on her last name, Brett. Do you remember? Um, uh, that video, Georgia, you're voting Pat, Pat, for me. Patty, Patty Austin, Gram, Grammy Pat award winner, Patty Austin, amazing singer. You know, and so a lot of it is we move really quickly at Midas Touch. So from the beginning of videos to releasing the videos, because it's literally just kind of me, Brett and Jordy, um, that takes, could take three hours. It could take five hours. But what about the lyrics? Where did that come from? So How I, did that all come together? Because I found Goodbye Donnie to be fabulous. I, I could break down that end of it since I did the, the production end of that piece. And so, and to give you a sense of the timeline, basically, so the inauguration was Wednesday, January 20th. On Monday, January 18th at night, I got a direct message on Twitter and an email from Bette Midler. Um, and we had worked with her on the past. She had reached out about us working on a, another song with her, which we did. And so she had our information. She, she's a, a big fan, big supporter of Midas. Um, she reached out. She said, if I do a parody version of Hello, Dolly called Goodbye, Donnie, would you be able to turn something around quickly? And I mean, it's Bette Midler. I'm, I'm going to say yes, no matter what at that point. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yes. Obviously I could turn it around right away. And so she sent it to me on Monday, that Monday night. And I started working on it um, Tuesday and we got it out Tuesday night. Um, So it was less than 24 hours, probably from time that I received the song to the time that, you know, I edited it, got it approved by her um, so that she liked it got it up, you know, made all the assets for it, et cetera. And the lyrics were written by Eric Kornfeld, who works with Bet a lot, um, has written a lot of parody songs over the years. I think back in the day, he used to do parody songs for Rosie's show and, and wrote comedy for Rosie's show and, and things like that. The piano, I'm going to totally butcher his name probably, but it was by Mark, Mark Scheiman, Mark, 
I think it's Mark Scheiman, um, who's just a, a legendary pianist who has worked with Bette Midler and a bunch of other just incredibly famous acts and done a lot on Broadway throughout the years. So it was really, and, and Bette, of course, sung the song. So it was just a, a powerhouse of talent that really just arrived in my inbox by chance. And then from there, we, we made the video around it. We got it out and it, it caught fire right away. I think it was the right timing for it, the right tone. People were ready to just sort of say, goodbye, Donnie, you know, get out of here. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, hey, Ben, let me ask you this. Colorado representative Lauren Boebert is likely in a ton of trouble for her role in inciting and perhaps helping the rioters. Discuss with me what you've heard as to what she's accused of actually doing. And then I'd like for both of you to discuss the um, the persona that she has now adopted for herself as the self-appointed right wing to the AOCs of the world and the, and the squad. She seems very troubled, to, putting it mildly. I mean, I think that there's some real serious psychological imbalance going on there. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. But I think in my world, we turn around and we say, that girl's fucked up. Yeah, Bobert Bo has a long rap sheet of being arrested. And not only being arrested, but then not showing up to our court hearings. Um, and there's a, a significant amount of white privilege at play. Because when you actually read her not showing up, the fact that she didn't serve serious jail time for her conduct in the past is kind of is kind of unbe- you know unbelievable but she's got a huge rap sheet and then her husband was arrested for exposing himself to two 16-year-old girls at a bowling alley by taking out taking out his penis um in the bowling alley and his defense was that it was his thumb no his defense was that combined they're 32 <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking asshole no, no doubt about it but what i'm hearing is is that so i gave when I was working on Capitol Hill as an intern like 20 years ago, I gave those Capitol Hill tours, which are regular tours that people show up at the congressperson's office. And either the congressperson, if it's like a high level VIP, or if it's just a constituent, it's usually an intern, will give you these tours. Well, because of COVID, they shut down. There were no tours happening at all at the Capitol building. But a few days before the January 6th insurrection, other Congress members saw Bobbert and her staff with other individuals giving them a tour when there were no tours allowed. Now, there were other comments from Bobbert, you know, basically the next day during the insurrection saying that Nancy Pelosi left the chambers, you know, saying 1776, which is kind of coded language for these insurrectionists. So what the investigation is into now is I don't think there's a dispute that she was giving people a tour of the Capitol when she was not authorized to give them a tour of the Capitol. I think the one question is, is were those people then the insurrectionists the next day? I th- I could hypothesize the answer is is yes. But if they were yes, then she's going to be under serious, significant criminal repercussions. She'll likely be expelled from the Congress. But that's the one final link, Michael, that I'm hearing investigators are looking into is were those people on the tour insurrectionists or gathering information for the insurrectionists? And in terms of her persona, she's developed, I called it on Twitter, Second Amendment cosplay, because when you actually see her, I've never seen her shoot a gun before, um, but she definitely is holding 
these guns incorrectly. And when you're taking photos with guns, you don't have your finger on the trigger for a variety of reasons. And she's doing that on, you know, on, on these things when she has the gun. So, you know, that second amendment cosplay thing is, is the persona that she's taken on. And I think it's, I think it's problematic. It's bizarre, but it's also emblematic of what you see in Georgia with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's actually a QAnon person who's QAnon in Congress. She blocked us, by the way, the other day. Yes, she blocked. Oh, well, lucky you. Hey, Brett, let me ask you, yeah. what does Midas touch pivot to next now that Trump is out of office? Well, I think more than anything at this point, we've, we've evolved in even the terminology we use when we talk about Midas. We used to say, you know, try to figure out, are we, do we say we're a progressive organization? Are we like a democratic organization? And now we like saying best, we're, we're a pro-democracy organization and we're going to fight for a democracy at home and abroad. And right now there are still an incredible amount of, of threats to democracy. Currently, it's often referred to as Trumpism, but I think it goes beyond Trump at this point. And that's what we were alluding to earlier. We were talking about the Hawleys, the Cruises, the Boberts. I think Midas has to be a source of, of truth. It has to be a fighter against disinformation. I think it needs to be a fighter for values that we hold dear, whether that's like increasing the minimum wage or fighting climate change, or racial justice, prison reform. I think Midas has to be a big player in activating people in ways that they haven't been activated before. And I think that's the through line of the general Midas touch follower, whether they're 65 or whether they're 25 or whether they're 15. I think they're often people who, like us, weren't were maybe paid attention to politics on the side, but weren't activists. And we were accidental activists and we've kind of cultivated this entire group of accidental activists. And now we need to use that momentum to push forward in many different ways. And the PAC is going to continue to be the PAC to fight for these values and grow. And we're going to take on all these seditious senators and Congress people. We're going to look to 2022. Um, and we're also growing our, our media operation around it, which is like the Midas Touch podcast and, and different things that we're working on there where we could, you know, the same way Fox News has a stronghold on the right and has has so just defined everything that they do and that politicians need to do. We think there's a space for a, a version of that on the left that leads with truth and honesty. And we think Midas Touch could help fill that void and help, you know, our pro-democracy values be pushed not just during election cycles, but around the clock. You know, one of the issues that you brought up, of course, is Fox News. I think you're going to see a very different Fox News now that we're in 2021. Because one thing that they are beginning to feel is Trumpism against them. The fact that Donald Trump started to attack Fox and attack them viciously after they had been protecting him. Is it any different, by the way? Hey, Rupert. It's if the same abuse. It's my the same podcast, cycle of abuse. Right? Is it, does it, everything with Donald Trump is like a history lesson. All you need to do is look to the way he fucked me over and understand, Rupert, that you are not any different than Michael Cohen. You're not any different than the contractor from Atlantic City. Whatever he will do to them, he will do to me, and he will do to you, because Trump lacks empathy, he lacks care or compassion, he lacks humanity for anyone or anything 
other than himself. It's just plain and simple. And he demands loyalty, but he does not reciprocate that same loyalty ever. If you cross him. Yeah, we like to say here on Mea Culpa that Donald Trump is like First Avenue in Manhattan. It's all one way. Yep. And you are 100% right there, Brett. He does not believe in reciprocal. And if he gives you the slightest, it for some reason, when you're in the cult, it feels like the light of God has shined upon you and you start to crave it. And that's what keeps people like the moronic Mark Meadows or the idiot Jim Jordan. I mean, they so take Jim Jordan for a second. Jim Jordan gets the Medal of Freedom along with Devin Nunes. Two total fucking incompetence as far as I'm concerned, right? Two totally incompetent congressmen. And they get the Medal of Freedom. Who the fuck wants it? I mean, who wants it? You may as well take a soda can, smash it, attach it to a, to a garbage string, and then tie it around your neck because it's not worth shit. Why? Because yep. Donald fucking Trump gave it to you. Well, just like he demeaned the office, he demeaned the value of that award. Like, they almost need to throw out the award and make something completely different because it, if Jim Jordan could get it uh, and Devin Nunes could get it, it doesn't mean shit at this point. They should stick it on eBay and see whatever they sell it for and donate it to one of the you know needy charities. That's what I would do. Um, hey, you know, so as we're beginning to wind down the hour, um, hey, Ben, let me ask you this, because I want to talk for a moment about how scarily intertwined, and I think one of you brought it up, QAnon has become with the GOP, both in Congress, uh, with crazies like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, and as well as the state and local levels. And that's something that I hope that Midas Touch really starts to look at as you begin to Use your voice, your power, your your knowledge in terms of going after these local and state level officials, because with time, those local and state level officials then become congressmen, they become senators, and then they really infiltrate our system with their crazy conspiracies. No doubt about it. QAnon is a dangerous and bizarre cult believing that the Democratic Party and Hollywood are all pedophiles, you know, and are part of this massive pedophile conspiracy. And the only person who can save it is Donald Trump, who's been, you know, charged with many, many, many dozens of sexual assault allegations. But somehow Donald Trump is supposed to be the savior with weird aspects like JFK Jr. is still alive. And JFK Jr. is going to be Donald Trump's running mate. And on January, on January 20th, you know, apparently Donald Trump was going to rise up and they, you know, and Q believed that, you know, he was going to execute all of the past presidents and take his place as the king of, of the world. I mean, it's some crazy, scary shit, but the people believed it. I think, you know, we did a deep dive on the Midas Touch podcast into cult behavior. And we interviewed Diane Benskitter, who talks about deprogramming and the attraction and allure and luster of cults and how once people are in cults, one of their biggest fears of leaving is the fear of humiliation. And certainly there are some people who are going to be irredeemable, you know, who are so far down the rabbit hole and who have engaged in such horrible conduct, they can't be rehabilitated. But there are certain people, though, who went down this rabbit hole who were brainwashed and, and were truly fucked up. But we also have to have some level 
of sensitivity. And I know it sounds shitty after all the bullshit they've put us through, but to allow there to be a soft landing for certain redeemable people to heal. You know, I you hear stories all the time. These aren't just, you know, like the wacko uncle who lives in the basement. Like there are some people who are doctors, you know, and who are lawyers and your next door neighbors, you know, who for reasons that are unclear had this void in their life and this QAnon Trump cult was able to fill it at the right time. They got the disinfo fed to them online. They started going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And there has to be a soft landing for some of them to get out. And, you know, they, they need to be called out for it. But, you know, one of the things we're focusing on is reading that literature on cult deprogramming. We try to implement it in our videos by calling up, like having the narrative be the voice of Trump and then juxtapose to the truth, voice of Trump juxtapose to the truth and doing lots of videos like that and then combining it to with certain hashtags. Um, there's a science behind those videos based on some of the literature we've read in that field and try to get at that and break some of those deep-seated cult bonds, but we need to continue to call it out. But we're very attentive and focused to that at my discussion. You know, so as we now come to the end, we come to the end of our hour and so, I want to ask a final question here, and I think this is possibly the single most important question I may have asked so far in all of the episodes that I have done on Mea Culpa. Does it worry you at all that we're placing these incredible expectations on the shoulders of Joe Biden? In essence, really one man? Because no president, since maybe since Roosevelt has come into office, having to face so many interlocking crisis all at once. A year ago, remember, most progressives didn't even want to say Joe Biden's name. But now, right, he's been thrust into history. And he really must save this country from the ravages that Donald Trump left. What's your thought on that one? Brett? Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think anybody necessarily, you know, even a year or two ago would have thought of Joe Biden as a transformative figure like he's become. But the fact is, he's been thrust into this position, like you said, by the nature of the moment. I think, you know, one of the good things for him is that the expectations are so low after Trump that I think just a switch back to normalcy is going to be a breath of fresh air for America. And I think that is going to go an incredibly long way. And I think people are already starting to feel the effects of a Biden presidency. And people need to give him time to figure it out. They need to give time for the Democrats to figure out how to wield their new power. And they need to understand that we're still going to have Republican obstruction in front of us. But there are a lot of things that even in Joe Biden's first day, he was able to accomplish by signing those 17 plus, I think now it's up to 25 executive orders, reversing a lot of the Trump policies. And these are really like monumental life-changing things for, for a lot of people, whether it be for immigrants' rights or LGBTQ rights. I mean, it, it sounds like, oh, yeah, he just signed a sheet of paper. But by doing that, he just gave a lot of people their life back. And I, that's, to me, you, you can't really downplay how consequential that is for so many people. And I think this return to normalcy, 
I think is going to just be, you know, incredibly valuable. I think people are going to start seeing that they're going to get their, you know, stimulus checks in the mail. Government's going to be working for them. We see Fauci out there who, you know, now looks like relieved and is able to tell the truth to people. People are going to see COVID getting under control over the next few months. Hopefully by summer, we're able to return to some sort of normalcy. And I think when we start seeing those big picture issues coming through, I think people will see just how important this switch of power has been. Is everybody going to be happy? No. I mean, you'll always have people, you know, on the fringes of the party who are going to say, well, why didn't he, you know, cancel all payments for this and do all of that? But, you know, right now, people need to realize that this is an existential moment for our country. I don't think people totally get how close we were to losing it all. And I mean it, like everything, everything. And there could have been so many, there were so many opportunities for us to lose it all along the way. Whether it was, you know, a random ministerial kind of Republican job, somebody who could have voted one way and then ended up voting for democracy. Had that vote been switched, things could have been changed. There are so many things like that across the way. Supreme Court cases, I believe there was one in Wisconsin where the balance was a one vote difference between like overthrowing or reconsidering overthrowing the votes of Wisconsin. We were so close to losing this country. And if we had a second Trump term, I have no doubt we would have lost our democracy as we know it. It just would have. He would have 100 percent, 100 percent. He would have spent every waking second trying to figure out how to be the demagogue, how to be an autocrat or our dictator. He wouldn't want to be called president anymore. He would want to be called your highness. He would have installed, you know, whoever he wanted, you know, whether it be one of the kids or whomever after his reign, quote unquote. And, you know, I think just the mere fact that we are where we are, that Joe Biden is in there, I think it is historic. And I think we're already starting to feel that cloud lift the sky part. And, you know, Joe Biden has... I do not envy him for one bit with the task that he has ahead, but I believe that he is the only person, and I believe I said this in the show, I believe he's the only person out of every candidate out there who is equipped to meet this moment. Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden answered your question. I mean, he said, and his press secretary did, they said, this isn't about Joe Biden. It's about democracy. The presidency is not a dictator. You know, it was all Trump, 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 Trump. Joe Biden saying... It's not it's not about me. I'm going to surround myself with great people. I'm going to let great people do good work. And I'm going to I'm going to rely on science and data and and let the truth, you know, reign supreme. And so that's what that's what gave me comfort, Michael, to your question. You know, it's funny because I was going to say the same thing. I marked it down on my little piece of paper here. It's all about the staff. And Joe Biden has staffed Washington with top quality individuals that don't care about lining their pockets and making side deals for themselves pre and post their um, their employment in Washington, right? Like Trump's administration. <laughs> He's got a real staff. And I do truly believe in Joe Biden. I believe that he is exactly, you know, there's that old saying, right, that God only puts on the shoulders of man what he can handle. And I believe that Joe Biden can handle it. He is a wonderful family. He has wonderful staff, people that work around him. The, the people that work around Joe Biden all have the greatest things to say about him, 
right? Uh, I was speaking, for example, to Rufus Gifford uh, or Michael um, LaRosa. And when you ask them, how do you describe, how is working for Joe Biden? They said, like working for family. That's not an answer that you're going to hear from anybody that worked for Donald Trump. Now, as we finish this thing up, I just want to ask, and this is for my listeners, how can we, meaning my listeners here on Mea Culpa, how can we continue to help um, Midas Touch as you move along in your process? How do you get involved with Midas Touch? Well, follow us on all the social media platforms. We're at Midas Touch, and it's spelled M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H after based on our our last names. So follow us everywhere. Um, We often have different campaigns to go after different sort of candidates and different priorities. So you could follow along with the campaign. Chip in if you can. Donate to our organization so that we could keep running these campaigns and keep holding the seditionists, the traitors in Congress accountable. Um, Listen to the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. The Midas Touch podcast is available everywhere. Listen, listen to this one first. Listen to, to, listen to May Culpa first. Well, the only way they're going to get to this at the end is if they listen exactly. to it. Exactly. So, for you, Michael. I'm just giving you. I'm just let you know it's not. Then I appreciate it. I appreciate it, <laughs> guys. I really do appreciate. I appreciate everything that you that you're doing. Everything that you're going to continue to do. And I told you before that we before we even started the program that um, anything that. I can do to help you guys because um, especially as it relates to prison reform, um, that's something that I've now taken up the mantle on. But anything that you need from me, um, you know where to find me. And I want to thank both of you for everything you did and for everything that we're going to do together. So thanks again. Thank you, Michael. Sincerely. Thanks for having us on. And now for today's mea culpa. We have reached a moment in time now where we have a chance to walk back from the precipice and the politics of ruin. As President Biden said, politics does not need to be this raging fire that destroys everything in its path. I welled up a bit watching his inaugural address as I thought back four years prior to Donald Trump's speech and the dystopian future it envisioned. There was no hope, no chance for a better future. There was only fear. Donald Trump had tapped into a generational rage felt by white, working-class Americans who felt their place in this country slipping away. Trump was able to make it about us versus them. Immigrants, Muslims, African Americans, liberals, the list grew and grew and then grew. It was its own raging fire that required a constant state of fear to replenish itself. All of it, though, was based on fear, conspiracy, and fucking lies. Thankfully, as I said in the beginning of this episode, elections have consequences. Trump lost and the raging fire he lit is being extinguished. We are finding ourselves again, or at least the people we were, before Donald Trump took office. That said, many of us were irreparably changed by the forces of history Donald Trump thrust upon us. I went to prison and came out changed for the better on the other side. Unity, though, does not mean the blind acceptance of one person's vision against all others. It's not zero-sum. That is Trumpian unity. In Biden's words... I heard a plea to decency, respect, and empathy. And hopefully we can get there together. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer, Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. 
Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Wait. As long as it takes. So you guys are only going to do this one ride all day? It won't be that long, probably. Mom, can you get us food? But wait, are they cutting? Caleb, food is so far away. Should I say something? Daddy, pick me up. Mom! Hey, there's a line here. Daddy, swing me. That's like 20 people. Oh one person holds the line for 20 people? This is bullshit. Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.